Hello, this is Dr. Lise Auschuler, and today we'll be mapping tumor metabolism on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lise Alshuler. Dr. Alshuler is the executive director of TAP Integrative, a nonprofit web-based educational resource for integrative practitioners. Dr. Alshuler is a professor of clinical medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine, where she is on the faculty of the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. She practices naturopathic oncology out of Naturopathic Specialists, LLC, and Dr. Alshuler co-hosts a radio show, Five to Thrive Live, and is co-founder of the I Thrive Plan, a lifestyle app for cancer survivors. She is co-author of Definitive Guide to Cancer, now in its third edition, and Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer. And as you'll hear in this episode, the epigenetic factors and the non-negotiables are critical in addressing our topic of today's conversation. Dr. Lise, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are talking today about tumor metabolism, and I'm wondering, when you speak about tumor metabolism, what does that mean? How do cancer cells behave differently than non-cancerous cells from a metabolic perspective? It's a fair question, and there are actually quite a few metabolic aberrations, really not within the cell solely, but within the entire tumor microenvironment. Mm. And those metabolic aberrations really in many ways drive tumorigenesis so much so that there's a very healthy, well-founded theory that cancer begins as a disorder of the stroma hmm. and that the normal breaks to abnormal cell proliferation are lifted essentially through various metabolic aberrations, allowing cells to proliferate. And as they proliferate in an uncontrolled manner, they gain mutational characteristics, which we then see when the tumor is large enough to be measured. But in fact, those mutations may not have been the original drivers. Now, that is that is the case in some cancers, but I think in probably the majority of cancers, we're really looking at a tissue-based disease. How has that shifted over your time in working with cancer? Because you've specialized in this arena for quite some time and our thinking about the tumor microenvironment has changed so much. Mm -hmm. You know, I think as a naturopathic doctor, I've always had this inclination towards a more holistic perspective on carcinogenesis. And yet, in my oncology course in naturopathic medical school, we were taught what was then the accepted model of carcinogenesis, which was a very linear model, starting with you know, acquired mutations and um, progressing to tumor growth. 
Since then, that model has really adapted with, as you said, a lot of the research in the tissue field theory of cancer. And now we have what are called the hallmarks of cancer, which still include mutational issues, but have now included a lot of these metabolic and tissue-related dysfunctions. So the concept, even from a very conventional research-based perspective has really changed a lot in the last 20 years. And how does that change your treatments? My treatments have changed in that I prioritize the health of the tissue or, or I seek to reinstate healthy stromal dynamics with much more rigor than I did perhaps previously. Although to be fair, you know, I think I've always addressed that as I think right. most of us integrative practitioners have, but I feel like I'm standing on more solid ground and I have a better framework to guide my interventions, to measure the impact of my interventions. And I think as we continue, as I continue to look at the research in this area, the nature of my interventions have gained some sophistication perhaps. And, and you know, what I use is different now than it was 10 years ago to some in some respects. And as you said, this is evolving too. So, you know, I don't get too attached to anything I do, to be right. frank, because I know it's going to probably change in a few years. Yeah, it does change all the time. And yet some of the things, like you're saying, that we do when we do have a more integrative or holistic or functional perspective don't change because we're looking at the human, the individual. So if I go to our left side of the matrix, thinking about antecedents, triggers, mediators, are there certain situations that kind of prime the stroma to be unhealthy? I think I would say that the main change in the stroma is oxidative stress with the overexpression of what's called HIF-1 or hypoxia-inducible factor 1. That happens very early in carcinogenesis before there's any histological or imaging evidence of cancer. And so all of the things that can increase the oxidative stress or destroy the redox balance on a tissue level can be triggers to this process. So, you know, as integrated practitioners, we have a long list of these triggers. Of course, we think about uh, dietary oxidative stress, right. which comes not only from what we eat, but how much we eat, how mm -hmm. often we eat, what our eating window or our, rather our fasting window is. Uh, this includes environmental stress toxicants, which can act as oxidative stressors, particularly when there's um, exposure to multiple toxicants over a long period of time. This includes infections and especially chronic infections leading to a chronic sort of more insidious level of oxidative stress. But it's also true that acute infections have been linked to certain cancers as well. And I think there are, you know, other sort of metabolic issues relating to, for example, being sedentary, that mm. creating higher levels of oxidative stress in the tissue. Um, so those are kind of some what I would characterize as modifiable right. triggers and antecedents. And I think that's probably of most interest. There are certain non-modifiable ones as well, which is where, for example, inherited genetic mutations or certain SNPs can leave people perhaps more susceptible to some of these oxidative stressors. And what are those factors, those genetic factors that do impact tumor metabolism? So there's several, and this is, I would characterize this whole area as perhaps um, more theoretical than solidly clinical. Um, that being said, we know, for example, that there is a 
clear connection between hyperglycemia and also insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And of course, they often come hand in hand with an increased risk of all cancer. And that's especially true, like anybody with a fasting blood glucose over 100 has an increased risk of developing cancer in their lifetime. And one of the reasons for that, I would argue, is that when we have hyperglycemia with insulin resistance, or even prior to the development of insulin resistance, that's a direct pathway into increased metabolism. So the proliferation rate increases. There are various inflammatory changes, which you know are due to the epigenetic effects yes. of being in a hyperglycemic state. So I think that that's a, kind of a big one. <laughs> yeah. What about if we're thinking about epigenetics and how the epigenetic factors impact the tumor metabolism, where and how do you deal with stress in your patient population? Glad you asked about that. I can't believe I missed that in my modifiable uh, (laughs) factors earlier because I talk a lot about stress. I think it's probably one of the most important factors underlying carcinogenesis. So when we are under chronic stress with dysregulated hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis function, we go into a state of hypercortisolemia. One of the characteristics of hypercortisolemia over a long period of time is peripheral cortisol resistance. Mm -hmm. So although cortisol is normally an anti-inflammatory hormone, when there's high levels of it for a long period of time, our tissues gain resistance to it. Just like high levels of insulin, we develop insulin resistance. Same thing happens. And with that cortisol resistance, we see a lot of inflammation develop instead of the anti-inflammatory effects. So our immune cells start to behave in unpredicted ways or opposite ways that we would expect. We get more inflammatory cytokines. We change the hormones that control our satiety and our, you know, macronutrient kind of balancing effects. So we get more fat deposition and muscles. We have uh, various changes in the way that, you know, and these are all epigenetic. So we actually change gene expression for these inflammatory cytokines and and hormones and disrupt membrane integrity, which is going to influence this whole stromal environment. So, yeah, stress is a big, big deal. There's been some great clinical studies on this. It's a hard question to study clinically when we ask, does chronic stress cause cancer? So the easiest way to study this is to say people have already been diagnosed. Those that are stressed, what's their risk of recurrence and how does that differ between people that are less stressed or that have a higher or better social support system, et cetera. And in many cancers and in many recent studies, that connection is very clearly established, so much so that it, in some cancers, is now considered chronic stress or distress is, is considered an independent risk factor for the increased risk of recurrence. It's so interesting to think about stress in relation to our social factors, but also all the stresses that can be happening physiologically inside of us when we are more exposed to environmental toxins or other hormonal imbalances or immune and inflammatory issues or gut issues, like all these stressors that we experience that actually influence our resilience to be able to work with all these factors in our body. We have cancer moving through us all the time, and we're either creating the environment for that to metabolize one way or the other. Is there a way to assess tumor metabolism? You know, it's a good question. So 
one of the challenges with tumor metabolism is that all of these changes really happen in a very focused environment, which we now call the tumor microenvironment. There are systemic contributors to that, but a lot of these changes are actually quite local. So it's sometimes difficult to assess in the tools that we have what's going on in that tumor microenvironment. So for example, one of the cytokine characteristics of a tumor microenvironment is elevated transforming growth factor beta. This is something that's induced by hyperglycemia that we talked about earlier. It's really integral to inducing what's called epithelial mesenchymal transition, which is a process by which stem cells gain stemness and that kind of feeds tumor growth. So it's a really essential component of carcinogenesis. Now, transforming growth factor beta can be measured in the serum, but it can be normal. You can still have a ton of it in this tumor microenvironment. So it becomes challenging in that respect. Having said that, in my clinical practice, I do pay close attention to assessing for the antecedents. So I look at what is somebody's glucose level, what's their hemoglobin A1c, what's their insulin resistance as measured by HOMA-IR, so fasting glucose and insulin. I do look at some systemic inflammatory markers like CRP. I look at SED rate. Mm -hmm. And I will also uh, take a look at various hormonal pictures, you know, take good thorough evaluation of thyroid, maybe even assess adrenal function to get at that stress. So I'm kind of measuring the antecedents with the leap, if you will, that if there are those issues going on, that might be feeding into the tumor microenvironment. But actually measuring the metabolic aberrations inside the tumor microenvironment is challenging, to say the least. I like the approach you're talking about because it allows us to assess what's true for that individual and start to mediate those factors, whether they're inflammatory or they have to do with blood sugar or stress levels or hormone dysfunction, and determine if we shift that terrain, how does that impact the tumor microenvironment? Because there's something feeding it, as you said, an antecedent and how do we address that? When you're thinking about tumor metabolism, is there anything else that you didn't get to speak into that you feel like practitioners should be aware of? Well, you know, I think that from a metabolic perspective, to summarize in essence how we translate that into a clinical objectives, I would say that the main objectives for clinicians are really around the antecedents. So let's look for and reduce toxins and things that can act as toxins, whether it's infectious or environmental. I think we have to really pay attention to systemic metabolism, especially to blood sugar and insulin resistance. We need to look at and assess patients for their stress levels and mitigate that stress. Mm -hmm. And then I think as much as we can help support appropriate redox balance, which means giving cells, and this would really be more from a prevention standpoint, but giving cells the antioxidant capacity that they need to counter the oxidative stress. And that, of course, feeds into making sure they have healthy mitochondria and all of the nutrients that we know are good for the mitochondria. So we have so many strategies yes. to address all of these key components. And I think that becomes a very solid cancer risk reduction program and all of those things have more or less applicability during active cancer as well. And then I would just footnote all of this to say that, you know, if we had the hypothetical perfect clinician and the perfect patient, so all of these things are implemented perfectly, 
we still could have cancer develop because mm-hmm. there, you know, is this very accelerated environment of dysfunction within that tumor microenvironment that sometimes can persist despite having a really healthy person or body surrounding it. So I think that's an important yes. thing to remember because, you know, our patient doesn't fail. We don't fail. Yes. Uh, we do our best and things sometimes are just beyond our reach. Yes. Beautifully said all around. So many factors we can influence and then we can't take on the responsibility for when they don't work because there are factors in the body that we can't touch. So Really beautiful. Lots of good information. Thank you, Dr. Lise. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, as well as Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll drop into your inbox with a really short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You have an open invitation to email us. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15 Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.